kind introduction, but uh, really the only thing that's important about me is that I can sing that last line of the song, Jesus Christ is Lord. By the mercy of our Lord, he has worked salvation and faith in my heart, and so I get to come be here with you guys uh, as one who gets to share in that testimony. I am deeply convinced that the church of Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. And even in saying Jesus Christ is Lord, it draws my mind back to that very reality that we see when Peter makes a very similar confession in Matthew 16. Matthew 16, we've got a well-known interaction between Jesus and some of, the, some of his disciples asking, who do you say that I am? And the disciples first give the answer of the crowds, a couple different options, but then Jesus narrows in and he says, but who do you say that I am? Peter, ever impetuous, pipes in and he says, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I've been convinced by my own experience that the church of Jesus Christ is the hope of the world, but even more than my own experience, the word of God and this promise here that not even the gates of hell will prevail against Christ's church drives me to the premise that I want us to reflect on tonight, that missions and all that we do for the Lord is something that is centered inextricably on his church. And so I want to talk to you about church-centered missions and the implications for that. I want to draw it first from some passages that you guys are apparently familiar with as uh, Jeremy worked you through uh, Acts chapter 13 and 14. I want to give those passages another pass, and I want to ask, what is it that we can learn from this precedent of early Christian missions as we see the church involved in identifying those within their midst who the Spirit is setting apart for a specific task, in being able to assess and evaluate those ones and then to equip them to lay hands on them, commissioning them and partnering them. Now, the book of Acts is a passage or a, a book that is filled with all sorts of description of things that have happened in the early church. And so I want to begin with the caveat of acknowledging that what I'm going to argue for, I'm not arguing is the something that is demanded of us in Scripture. There's not a command that I am pointing to here. But I do want to lean in to say, even though we don't have a command in the clearest form, this is the precedent that we get in Scripture, that the church is involved in the sending of missionaries, that the church, when they send their missionaries, send them for the purpose of planting and encouraging churches. And so from beginning to end, missions is about the church. It is from the church and to the church for the sake of multiplying gospel-believing disciples who would worship the Lord as his body. 
I'm going to argue, I spend a lot of time in the classroom, so I'm going to start out here and just kind of give you my thesis, and I want to work through that throughout this, uh, this time that we have together. The thesis is that the agent, authority, and aim of missions is the local church of worshiping disciples who display the good reign of King Jesus. Now, that's a lot of words. So let's narrow in and figure out why did I pick all of these words. I think agent and authority are two words that go together. And in some ways we would say, well, if there is a church that's involved in sending somebody as a missionary, having a commissioning service or whatever, whatever it is that your church does, it, it seems like, okay, that, that makes sense. But at the same time, I want to I be very clear on these two things, that this is something that belongs with the church not necessarily with those that the church partners with who would help support some of that sending process. And I want to walk through why it's important that the church, the local church, views itself as the agent of sending, the one tasked with the responsibility of identifying, evaluating, training, and sending its own own members, instead of abdicating that responsibility to an outside entity, like an agency. So I want to talk, and I want to press on this throughout tonight to say, what is the responsibility of the local church on the basis of the precedent we have in Scripture and on the basis of even just the practical ways that it plays out for us to send missionaries as churches? But then I also, in the, the third um, noun there, the, the aim I think the importance of recognizing that when we send missionaries, we send them for a task that all throughout Scripture, every example of those who are sent out are sent out as those who proclaim the gospel, who make disciples, who gather those disciples into local churches, and who raise up leaders from among among those places to, to lead those churches. So not only is the the church, the local church, the expression of identifying and sending its own, having authority to do so, but also the aim, the the, the telos, the the end to which we are sending our, our missionaries is the growth, the planting, and the encouragement and strengthening of local churches. And the reason that the local church is this locus is because of what we just read, that Jesus has promised that it is the church that he is building that will prevail against the gates of hell. In the church, the church is composed of worshiping disciples. So even, even as we say the church is the aim, it's not necessarily the end in and of itself because it is the church of gathered disciples that offers worship to God who is worthy of it. Okay? So worshiping disciples who are growing in their knowledge of Christ the gospel and all of its manifold implications and putting it to work in the spaces that they are commissioned to. So they're worshiping disciples who display the good reign of King Jesus. We come under Christ Jesus and his submission, mediated to us by means of the word and by means of the local church that covenants together to say we are gospel-changed people who intend to put on display the beauty of the gospel for those who are watching, and to remind one another in our walks with the Lord of that same beauty. 
All right, let me, let me work through this a little bit at a time as we consider how this comes out of the pages of Scripture. Because, I mean, I can nicely alliterate a, a little thesis up here for you, but who cares what I have to think, right? Let's consider, does this actually come to us from the pages of Scripture, or is it just light and passing? Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 13. Like I said, I know uh, Jeremy walked you through this, looking at the church at Antioch and some of its composition and what the church did yesterday. Um, So I don't want to belabor this point, but I do want to make a few stops as we see Barnabas and Saul and the church in Antioch and their relationship both at the beginning of the missionary journey and at the end uh, of it in chapter 14. Read along with me in the first five verses of chapter 13, first four verses. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a long friend of, longtime friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. So this is just the beginning of the journey, and sometimes uh, we get distracted by all of the amazing things that happen throughout these journeys. So we see the gospel proclaimed, we see demons cast out, we see people healed, we see the word of God coming in power. Those are the things that get the highlight reels of our memories through Acts. But I think this beginning has some details packed into it that we need to observe, especially as we're considering what does it look like for us, who are a people shaped by the Bible, both in its instructions and in its precedent, to be able to today take on these same activities of recognizing where the Spirit is at work, setting people apart, laying hands on them and commissioning them to this work. Is there anything in these first few verses that we might observe? And I do think there are. First, if you look with me down that Acts 13, 1 through 5 column, we see that the church of Antioch is in prayer, worshiping, and fasting. It's in the context of their worshiping gathering, their prayerful reliance on God, and their fasting, seeking out the will of the Lord. How do we operate in this new day that the Lord intervenes? We see Barnabas and Saul set apart for the work to which the Spirit has called them. We don't have a lot of details on what does it mean that the Spirit called them. Was there writing in the sky? Did they get a special delivery? We don't know exactly what it was, but it was something that the Spirit was clearly making a common impression on the gathered believers in the midst of their worship and in the midst of their fasting and seeking of the Lord, that there was something that he was doing in the lives of these two brothers that made it evident both to Barnabas and Saul, but also to the gathered church. The church recognizes this calling And it's interesting when we consider even in just the two verses, verses three and four, we see two different subjects involved in sending Barnabas and Saul. First, 
The church lays hands on Barnabas and Saul, and we're told the church sends them. But then in the next verse, it says, and being sent by the Spirit. And so we see there are two entities involved in this. There is the work of the Spirit, and there is the confirmation of the gathered body, saying this is something we affirm, discerning with, uh, with everything that we have that this is what the Spirit is doing. And then what do they do? Immediately, they begin proclaiming the Word of God. This is their pattern of ministry. Proclaim the Word of God. When people believe, they disciple them. When, when disciples are made, they gather them, they plant churches, they appoint elders. And we see this cycle throughout the book of Acts and throughout this ministry. Uh, we also then can go to the end of this first journey. If you flip over to Acts 14... And if we start picking up in verse 21 there, again, they're continuing this pattern of proclaiming the gospel, but they're about to make a return home. It says, when they preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. All right, so let's work our way down that Acts 14 column then. These are the two bookends of this first journey. They're sent out by the church and the Holy Spirit, discerning that the Holy Spirit was doing something in their midst, affirming them to be sent out, and immediately the thing they do is begin proclaiming the gospel. Well, When we pick up with them at the end of their journey, they're still proclaiming the gospel. They are working among the believers to strengthen them and encourage them. Paul and his companions are appointing elders in every church, not merely leaving them to be kind of immature young believers who randomly gather together, but saying these are churches. These churches naturally are led by shepherds appointing elders in every church. We see more prayer and fasting, committing these new churches and believers to the Lord. And then they returned to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God, where they reported the work that he had been faithful to complete in their midst. This is interesting when we consider all of the things that Barnabas and Saul had just seen. They had seen people from all over the region come to faith including beginning to see a a pathway of faith for the Gentiles opened up. This is literally a hinge of history for the Jewish people, where now faith was opening up a means to become the people of God without having to pass through Jewish traditions. It It would be understandable if instead of going back to Antioch, Paul and Barnabas said, you know who needs to know about this? The people in Jerusalem. They're the big dogs, right? This is where it all started. We need to go to Jerusalem and let them know what's happening. But no, 
they come back to Antioch. And what do they do? They gather the church and they report that they had been faithful to what they'd been commissioned to do. This tells me that Paul and Barnabas knew that they were under the authority of that group that had laid hands on them and affirmed the work of the Spirit in their lives. They had been commissioned by this church to a task, and part of that commissioning was a responsibility to return, to report and to say, what you sent us to do, the Spirit has done through us, all to the glory of the Father under the blood of Christ Jesus. And that's exactly what we see them do. And as a consequence, the gathered community there in Antioch worships. And again, just like they, were, they found themselves as they sent Barnabas and Saul off, they turn back praise to God here at the end. They report and celebrate what the Lord has done. If then we were to uh, kind of sort these observations into the responsibilities that we see of those who are being commissioned and the responsibilities we see of the church who's doing the commissioning, I think we can kind of sort some of these things into, two, into those two different categories. When we look at Barnabas and Saul as those who have had their hands, the hands of the church laid upon them and have been set apart for this work, what we see is that they are those who have been identified within the community of the church. They were known entities to the church where they had been tested, they had been seen in their ministry, in their worship, they had been evaluated. We're told if we go back to Acts chapter 11 that there had been at least a year period of time where Barnabas and Saul had been ministering together. And of course, if you remember your biblical history, this is important that Saul of all people be tested because of course he was the one who was trying to snuff the church out. And when he first arrived professing faith in Christ, there were a lot of people who were like, I don't know if we can trust him. That's the one who's hauling all of our friends off into prison. That's the one who was railing and breathing out threats against the church. And so they've, they've tested him. They've seen him working. They've seen him laboring. They've seen him confounding the Jewish community with his proclamation of who this Jesus is on the basis of the scriptures that he used to use in order to disprove Christ. So they've been identified in community and through corporate worship. They've been affirmed by testing in ministry, observed faithfulness, and the Holy Spirit. They've been sent to a specific task, and as we see them laboring out this task, task, we see it being evangelism, the verbal proclamation of the gospel, the making of disciples by walking people through what it means to be obedient to everything that Christ commanded, baptizing believers in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and gathering them into local churches wherein local leaders are raised up and appointed. And we also see that Barnabas and Paul are accountable to the church that sent them. So that's, that seems to be what we can gather from Barnabas and Saul's responsibility in this, this first trip. What about the church at Antioch? And this is maybe where it starts to land on more of us who are gathered here. What is the church's responsibility in sending missionaries? Well, first we see that the church is sensitive to the Spirit's work in the lives of their members. In the midst of the gathering, the prayer and the fasting and the worship, 
there was a collective sensitivity to saying, Lord, what are you doing in our midst? Who would you be sending? Such that they were able to identify there is something that the Lord is doing in the lives of Barnabas and Saul that we have to recognize. We see that they know one another and are engaging in being known by one another. They have meaningfully engaged with one another so that Barnabas and Saul are known quantities that when the Spirit starts doing something among them, they're not strangers. They're not people from the outside who we don't know anything about their history or character, but they're people who've been among us. They commission members to a specific task for which they will be held accountable. Again, they're not just being sent out as lone rangers who are functioning as soon as they leave the shore on that ship according to their own autonomous authority, but they're people who have been sent out under the ecclesial authority of the church. And they're willing then, uh, the church is willing to weigh in on the report of the work and to respond with worship for what God is doing through their sent ones. Again, this this is not necessarily given to us in a prescriptive sort of way, but at the same time, lacking any sort of a command to the, to the contrary or in a different direction for missions, I think we do well to attend to those spaces where we do have some unique precedent recorded for us in Scripture. So I think this does give us some formation to the way that we think about sending missionaries and being sending ones. Okay. How does this differ from what we tend to do? This is maybe where it gets a little pinchier. Because if we were to write a story comparable to what we see here in Acts 13 of the way that is most common for the field, what we would probably read would be something more like, and there were gathered at the missions conference at the local university, 10,000 students who were super hyped on Mountain Dew. And they listened to the speaker from out of town, and he was good. And they got very excited. And so they went out into the lobby, and they found table after table after table of agency that would be very excited to send them anywhere around the world in order to do lots of good things. And so they signed up with the agency, and they returned to some pastor that they could find who would sign the paper to say that they authorized them to go with this agency, and then the agency sent them overseas. That's not what we find here in Scripture. And yet, so often, this is the pathway that our missionaries find themselves going. I'd say the last 50 years have really been marked with this individual I would say discernment, but I think that's probably the wrong word, an individual sense of being called to the field because of some sort of a dynamic moment or occasion or event that got people really excited about the incredible need around the world. And they interpreted that excitement as something that was given to them as a calling, saying that because I have this enthusiasm in my heart because I talked with a recruiter for an agency and they told me that I could be used in this part of the world, now I can go back to my church and I can tell them of my calling. And I don't think that's the best way. 
I don't think that's what we see here in the precedent. What we tend to find is that individuals experience a calling towards missions in isolation. Oftentimes this comes from an event outside of the church, a conference or a parachurch, and I'm, I'm speaking as one who works in a parachurch entity at Cedarville University who hosts a missions conference that does have a lobby filled with agencies. And I can't tell you the number of times that I tell students, keep going through those doors and go find your pastor if you want to discern whether or not uh, this is something that you are called to. Talk to the agency after you can partner with your church with an agency. Don't get hyped on this and think that the Lord would call you in isolation from the church that you're a part of. Uh, Oftentimes, field and agency are then chosen by individuals, and churches are asked to play the role of signing off to agencies who will train, send, and hold accountable those that are their employees. I just think that's an abdication of our church's duties. What might change? If we, if we look at this pattern and this precedent in Acts, and if we believe that it is not the parachurch against which the gates of hell will not prevail, but it is Christ's church, what might change as we adjust our thinking about how missionaries are sent and how we as churches are involved in that sending? First, I think individuals might start to discern calling within the community of covenanted members. This gets to a a bit of a bigger issue beyond just missionary calling, but really just discerning giftedness. I mean, ever since magazines used to have those tear-outs where you could fill out what your spiritual gifts are and then determine what your spiritual gift is by taking a quiz, we have isolated the discernment of our giftings from the body for which we are gifted. I think it would really help us as a body, as local churches, to be more in tune with one another where we might say, I don't want to find my gifts from something I googled. I want to find my gifts from a brother or sister watching me in ministry and saying, I see this in you. The Lord has given you this, and you have a responsibility to this body to exercise this gift on behalf of your brothers and sisters. That's a far more powerful thing. I mean, I don't need need you to raise your hands or anything on this, but do you have a moment that you can think back to? Maybe it was way back when you were a kid that somebody stopped and pulled you aside and said, I see this in you. Just by saying that, I can call five or six times where somebody said something like that and it meant the world. But isn't that right? If we are a body, to know our parts should be part of the warp and woof of how we relate to one another. We should have a culture within our local churches of calling out one another for our giftedness, encouraging one another, but also in identifying them, calling people up into the use of their gifts. I think this is very true now if we come back to missions work, to to consider what does it mean for us to discern people in our midst who the Lord is doing something in their lives? I think we need to know them. I think we need to be able to observe one another in ministry and then to be able to take that next step, to, to call somebody to the side and to say, hey, I see this in you. 
I see your sensitivity to the need of the lost. I see you developing cross-cultural communication skills because of the places that you're putting yourself in. And I'm so thrilled that you're doing that here in our midst, but is there a sense in which the Lord might be doing more in you? Could we explore this? Is there something that the Lord might be doing to prepare you to be somebody that our church could lay hands on and commission? So I think rather than having people use even the language of calling as individuals, I've become more and more convinced that better language, and I think more biblical language, is for somebody who is exploring the discernment process of where the Lord might use them, to use that language that Paul uses when he talks to Timothy about the qualifications for elder. He doesn't say this is what an elder is in their calling, but rather he says for those who aspire to be an elder, this is a noble calling. And the aspiration is perhaps an individual disposition, but it's not yet a calling until the community of believers affirm that. I think so too. That's the situation that we should be looking for in our missions, uh, our missions excitement. Go to all those conferences, get hyped, drink all the Mountain Dew you want, but like come back to your local church and say, I have a passion for the nations and the urgency of lostness as well as the glory of God is compelling me and I can't shake this idea. Will you help walk alongside of me and discern whether or not this is a passing thing or whether or not the Lord might actually be doing something in me because I aspire to be used. Aspire to be used to the point of the church laying hands on you. Then that calling language, I think, is appropriate. Second, churches uh, can develop pathways or pipelines for identifying, discerning, and training. And I want to work through this in our next section here, but I think that as much as this may skew a little bit more towards some of the leadership in the church, developing some of these pathways, I don't want you to tune out if you're not at this point involved in leadership in the church, because at every point, you can play that role of being somebody who has your antenna up, looking for people in, the midst, in your midst to say, man, the Lord's doing something in your life. And I want to affirm that, but I also want to invite you into a conversation to say, you know, if there's ministry in a more vocational sense, whether here or around the world, in your future, our church has a pathway for this. And I'd love for you to explore this with me. Can I put your name in for this sort of a, a pathway? This is something that doesn't just belong to the leadership of the church, but it's an every member thing to call one another out for our gifts. I think uh, then once we, once we see the church involved on that front end of assessing calling, assessing what the Spirit is doing in the lives of people and calling them up to it, I think at that point the church is already taking some of the, uh, the steering wheel in this process and being able to say, okay, if you are somebody who we are seeing the Lord marking you out for this work, is there now a place a team, and an agency that might partner with us to do that. I think to have the church, the local church, being in the driver's seat for all of those things, I think is vitally, vitally important. Because too often, the agency gets chosen before the church, 
And somebody who's gone as an individual and signed up for a team and gotten excited about partnering with that team has already linked arms with an agency that may or may not fit the ethos of the church that they're a part of. And that gets real awkward real quick when you start saying, well, we do affirm your sending, but that's not an agency with whom we share sufficient DNA to be able to work with them. So let the, the church work out that teaming that uh, location, and then the agency that can best work as a, a sidecar to the church. This comes from my own time uh, on the field. As we were preparing to go, our church started a, a program that was you know, a cohort of people who were moving towards the field and to do some, some of the discerning as well as the, the equipping uh, work that they intended to do for those that they would send out uh, at one point, our, our missions pastor kind of leveled with us, and he said, look, we're a denomination that has a denominational sending agency, and we're grateful for that agency, but from our vantage point, they're just a divine travel agent. We are the ones who are sending you. And the church had that sense of buy-in, authority, and responsibility that they wouldn't, they wouldn't abdicate it to some outside group, even if it had denominational affiliation to be able to say, no, this is our task. This is entrusted to us. And so we will use the agency as a partner, but this is something that we're going to answer for. All right, and then finally, I think the church retains oversight of the ministry in partnership with the agency. I think this is something ongoing that we need to work with and to improve in because there are so many heartbreaking stories from the field where some agencies have taken upon themselves to do their own trainings and their own uh, methodologies that oftentimes run roughshod against the churches from whom their missionaries are entrusted. And then when the churches discover that their missionaries are on the field doing things that would never, never be uh, tolerated, in their midst, now there's a major conflict. And I can give you any number of examples, but one uh, recent one from the last decade was uh, a number of major players throughout the, the Muslim world who were agencies who had been working with field personnel in translation of the Bible among Muslims who determined, without telling people back in the States, that they were going to have more fruit if they started translating the Bible without the, the language of Son of God in it. And so, because our Muslim friends and neighbors are averse to the idea that Jesus is the Son of God, well, maybe it would make it easier for them to believe the gospel if he just wasn't. I mean, maybe it would, but they wouldn't be believing the gospel. And the last 2,000 years of church history would have a real issue with us taking out that language of Son of God that is so essential to determining the how our triune God is who he has revealed himself to be. You functionally end up undoing the Trinity in an effort to try to hopefully get a few more thing, people that you can report having prayed a prayer but all of a sudden they're praying a prayer to a God who is not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's not a victory. And when agencies are in the driver's seat, 
And when churches say, well, what's happening over there, uh, it's out of my wheelhouse. I don't know what to do with it, so I'm going to trust the experts on the field. Well, I think that's when things get untethered from that body that is going to prevail against the gates of hell. So we can't abdicate those responsibilities. All that to say, I probably need to land the plane at some point here, huh? You guys don't want to go home tonight, do you? Let me, let me work through a, a few things. I think there's five, five categories that we could, as churches, be uh, more intentional with. Identifying missionaries who the Lord is setting apart from within our midst, evaluating them, equipping them, commissioning them, and then moving into a season of partnership with them. When we think about identifying have a few questions that we might ask. Who would someone seeking discernment regarding missions go to first within your church? For those of you in leadership, what would you do if somebody came up to you after a service and said, I think the Lord is stirring missions in my heart. What's next? Is there an answer for that? How does somebody in your church go from having a a sense of stirring in that direction to being in front of the congregation as you lay hands on them to commission them? What's that process? Second, where would somebody's gifts and skills in your cross-cultural engagement be seen or observed within your congregation? Are there places and things you're already doing in which you can identify somebody who has some skill at taking the unchanging message of the gospel and proclaiming it in comprehensible ways. Certainly we might automatically think about people who are natural evangelists or who are involved in our outreach ministries, and those are great places to look, but I'd also suggest that those who are doing the work of teaching in the youth, taking the, the weighty things of God and communicating them in ways that are digestible to kids who may not have the vocabulary that we were trained with in, in church as adults, but who can nonetheless deliver the unchanging message clearly, I think that's a place where you have a lot of people who would be putting on display the ability to learn cross-culturally. How do I take this unchanging message of the gospel and communicate it in the changing and dynamic landscapes of the world? And then, finally, what if every member of the church had their antenna up for identifying people's gifts, skills, and role within the body? How would that change the life of your church if everybody was on the lookout for one another's gifts and everybody had the gumption to be able to go up and tell somebody when you see what the Lord is doing in their life? I think it would change a lot. Second, evaluate. Where are people in your church observed in ministry? Sometimes we get the idea that missions, ministry is somehow wildly divorced from the ministries that we have here. Let me disabuse you of that falsehood. If our task is to take the unchanging message of the gospel and the biblical account and to teach it to the next generation that they can teach the next generation, to make disciples by teaching them to observe everything that Christ commanded us, to baptize in the triune name 
of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and incorporate those baptized believers into local churches, there's no difference in the essential task whether you are doing that here or whether you are doing that in Nepal or whether you are doing that in the Ukraine or whether you are doing that in Brazil. That task doesn't change. So if you see people in ministry here, sure, the language, some of the cultural forms are going to change and be adapted, but it's the same process. Introducing people to our God, teaching them the unchanging doctrine of Scripture, and encouraging them to walk in the faith in ways that are in keeping with that. You do that everywhere you go. So let me just disabuse you of the idea that missions is something totally other and outside of your wheelhouse, because if you're doing that here, and I'd say this to pastors who oftentimes feel like their plates are too full to consider how do I disciple somebody towards the mission field, and I can't learn an extra, um, uh, an extra practice or discipline, it's the same fundamental task. You can bring somebody under your wing and disciple them towards the field, Give them those tools that, yes, they will perhaps take different shape in the spaces that they are going to take them to, but the same tools are going to be used for the same task. Um, I do think as you're evaluating people, it's worth saying the evaluation should have more criteria than merely having a passport and a pulse. Sometimes that has been our baseline. Somebody comes up and says, I want to go overseas, and we're like, what? Let's get you on a plane before you realize that that's hard, okay? (laughs) But my goodness, if this task is to take the message of the gospel and to clearly articulate it in ways that are going to challenge people in places far different than this, then we we should expect those we're sending to have some theological chops, to have the ability to know not only what the Bible teaches, but how what Islam is going to tell me in the same language it believes, we need to be able to detect where is the idolatrous impulse in this? How do I present the gospel in a way that doesn't just shade into Islam? or shade into Hinduism, but actually confronts it, lovingly and beautifully, but confronts it with clarity so that the theological integrity of this message doesn't get diluted. This is our task, and so as we are preparing to send people out, they should be able to do something like work through the doctrinal statement of the church at the the very least. What if you took somebody in their discernment process and walked alongside of them and showed how the scriptures bear out some of the convictions that your church has in your doctrinal statement? Teach them the movement from reading scripture to applying it in theological and doctrinal convictions and show them hermeneutics in that process. Train them up so that they're theologically sound so that when they get blasted by an idolatrous worldview, that they already have the impulses to be able to identify where things are going wonky and where they need to speak truth. So do some work in assessing their, both their theological acumen and their ability to learn cross-cultural skills. And then character and personal life. 
At our church, we have distributed this within our missions team across a number of different lay people who are part of our body, who have specific uh, wisdom in various elements of life. There's a group who, or a couple who, um, I mean, the, the number of people who have gone to them for marriage advice is, uh, is astronomical. We've asked them, would you sit down and ask a set of standard questions with those who we are working through a pipeline just to press into their marriage? Because that's going to be something the enemy is going to attack on the field. Help give them some handholds. Walk them through this. Get to know them so that if we do commission them, they have another person in the congregation that they've shared a meal with and that they know at a deeper level who's in their corner cheering for them. Likewise, we have a, a, somebody who will talk about uh, integrity and personal accountability. If you have had uh, besetting sins in the past, this doesn't necessarily preclude you from being sent, but my goodness, we want to do what we can to make sure that we are working with you in your discipleship and your reception of grace and also your building in of accountability structures on the field where that's going to be harder to come by. So let's have some conversation on that. Let's talk strategy, philosophy of ministry, and we'll talk about uh, communication and uh, evangelism and discipleship. Because frankly, we don't believe in transformation by transportation. (laughs) Probably stealing that from you, Byron. Um, The idea that if you are not sharing the gospel, but then we send you as a missionary, somehow on the plane, you're going to just dispositionally change. And when you land, you're going to start this thing in a harder context. We should be able to observe evangelism and disciple making here in our midst so that those are reflexes you're building into your life. This should be part of our evaluation, and it shouldn't be something that an agency should detect. One of the, one of the saddest things I think that I've, I've heard recently is a number of agencies uh, will have developed a, a standard protocol that if somebody has been uh, utilizing the internet in inappropriate ways as a pattern for a season, they're going to not allow that person to go to the field for at least a year, having worked out some, uh, some healthier patterns. Well, that's not sad to me. The sad thing is the number of missionary candidates who are asked those questions by an agency as the church is already ready to send them out that haven't been asked that by their local church. We should be asking these things because it's our task to disciple those in our midst. We should be working out these patterns of sin and helping people strive towards holiness as a part of our function as disciple-making long before an agency agency gets involved. And then in the equipping, uh, there's a lot of different things we can do here. Um, Determining where is a candidate best suited to serve, what skills, gifts, direction do they have? Do they have some natural connections that might narrow the field for them? Do we have any, any missionary units with our church that we might pair them with? That we might say, hey, this family that we've sent out has actually let us know they would love a teammate. And we'd love to see if there's a fit here. Let's start with those places we already have some investment. And then I think uh, as we think about um, what a candidate might need, to be trained in and to be shaped in. I look at the list of qualifications and expectations for elders and for deacons, 
And I think those are pretty good thresholds for us to consider if we're sending somebody out to proclaim the gospel, make disciples, and to plant churches. I don't think those are out of bounds for us to use as assessment for some of our missionaries. So what are we doing to equip people or to assess people already for being elders and deacons in this body? Well, we could apply some of those same things to those who are moving towards the field. If you've got a young man who you're discerning, is this somebody who we would send to the field? Invite them into an elders meeting. You don't have to reinvent the wheel or create a whole new pipeline. Bring them in. Let them observe what it looks like for the church to lead itself, to work through the naughty implications of discipling people in a context where we're still being sanctified. Allow them to observe some of those things. If you're a pastor and you're going on a visitation for the hospital, bring somebody along. Let them, let them mourn at the bedside of somebody who just got really hard news. Show them how to do the work of a pastor because shepherding people is shepherding people, whether you're here or there. And so I would say if you've got some patterns already in place for discerning and training elders and deacons and people who would be ministry leaders in your church, include missionary candidates in that. They need those same skills and reflexes. Again, by calling our attention to some of these things, I don't want to necessarily put more, um, more things on the plate of a church, but rather just to say the things that you're training people to do here are things that you will want them to do there. So bring them into those processes that already exist. Then moving on to commissioning, and there's a number of different things that the congregation might do in the process of commissioning. Uh, you can certainly have a vote of affirmation, but I think long before you get to the vote point, what can you do to expose the broader congregation to these, these people who are moving through the candidacy? At our church, one of the things we've done recently, uh, we've got uh, adult Bible fellowships that meet the second hour. We've taken those who are in our pipeline and given them spots at 15 minutes at the beginning of the adult Bible fellowship to do some interaction with the leaders where they do a little bit of background, a little bit of where their ministry trajectory is, and then they invite the people who are there to say, please, we are here for the next six months, the next year. Please invite us over for coffee. Bring us to, to lunch on Sunday. We want to get to know you, and we want you to get to know us because we want your vote at the end of, the, at the end of this pathway to mean something. We want you to know who you're laying hands on, and we want to be known because we intend to be accountable. A time of prayer, a vote of affirmation, and a commissioning to a task, I think, are very important things to clarify uh, for, uh, for sent ones. Don't just send somebody out to do good stuff out there. Clarify, what are we sending you to do? Because you're going to hold them accountable for that. And then support them financially and prayerfully. These are the things we're most familiar with. But that doesn't disclude also going out and, in, and meeting them on the field, seeing what they're doing, observing them, sending a few elders or a few deacons or a few uh, people who are close to them to take care of their kids for a week and let them go out on a week's worth of dates 
to pour into them on the field and give them that sense of being bought into in their ministry. Send a small contingent, maybe not to paint a building or to put on a VBS, but simply to love on your, your missionaries, your sent ones. That's a real way to partner. And then if you, uh, let's see, if we click to the last one here, thinking of partnering, this does involve the, the prayer and the financial support, but it also can involve field visits, short-term trips, can also involve when they're back on furloughs and stateside assignments. Do what you can to wrap them into the life of the church. Not just trotting them around to make them give reports and continue raising funds, but let them call the church to worship on a Sunday morning. Say, this is the body that sent us out and we're here to worship with this body. We'll report later on, but right now we want to be an integral part of this body because we're here while most of the time we're there. Celebrate what your church is doing around the world by integrating those partners back into your ministry when they're here. You're going to get the DNA of, of missions infused into every place that you put them when they come back. And so that's a good thing for your church to continue to have that heartbeat for the nations. All right, my time, I think, is well up. So why don't I land the plane with three or four suggestions, takeaways for everyone. Some of these things that I've talked about probably need to be dealt with more at like a, a church structure level or leadership level and building pipelines and things like that. But what is it that each of us could take away in this? First of all, I think we all need to be sensitive enough to what the Spirit is doing to be able to say, Lord, you've got my yes. Maybe it's me. I think that's not off the table. For us to be so willing to say, Lord, what is it that you would have me do to your glory with no caveats? To begin with that disposition and say, Lord, I want the Holy Spirit I want my church to speak into what is my responsibility in the Great Commission. Second, call people out when you see them using their gifts. Call them out, say, I've seen this in you. But then go the next step and say, so how are you stewarding that? How can you use that gift for this body? Because just like a body, as we see in Paul's writings and Romans and Ephesians and 1 Corinthians, when Paul talks about the body, he talks about parts that are given to the body for the body. So how are you using those gifts as a stewardship to the rest of the body? Call people into a training and evaluation process and consider, as you think as a church, about sending people out, what's it going to take for us to partner well with those that we send? That may mean that instead of sending a bunch of different people and supporting them in smaller ways, that may mean that you just go deep with a smaller number of people, but that you hold the rope in ways that are meaningful, that they know that they are partnered with a church that is deeply invested, not just financially, but who will be out on the field, who will read our newsletters, and my goodness, it means the world when you come back and somebody asks you about somebody that you've asked them to pray for by name and says, how is she doing? How is he doing? Partner well and be, be invested in the life of the church that goes beyond the walls of this church.
With that, let me close in prayer and just uh, transition to the next part here, asking the Lord to bless this. Father, you're good. You've been good to us. You've been good to us in the gospel, and the gospel calls us to a certain way of living that is not merely for us, but is a stewardship for your glory and for the hope of the world. So, Lord, would you use us? Would you pry our hands off of our comfort, um, uh, off of our fear, and off of our complacency at times, Lord, in order that we might be called up to use the gifts that you've given us to do so to make much of you. You're worthy of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.